The ideas, procedures, and suggestions contained within this podcast are not intended as a substitute for consulting with a medical professional. All matters regarding your health and fitness require medical consultation and supervision. Welcome to the Warrior Wellness Podcast, a podcast for military members, veterans, and first responders focusing on fitness, health, nutrition, and biohacking. Our mission with this podcast is to introduce America's heroes to lifestyle habits and hacks that will help them live healthier, happier lives, and in turn, be fit enough to continue their support of their communities and country. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the Warrior Wellness Podcast, and I'm really excited to um, talk to you about your latest book, All the Memories That Remain, and um, I am a about to publish a memoir, so I'm super excited to talk to you about your memoir and your process of writing this book. Um, but it definitely is a topic near and dear to our hearts with Fireteam Whiskey, since we are, um, you know, we serve uh, military veterans and uh, military members, and especially uh, we provide trauma services. So this kind of goes right in line with what we do with our wellness offerings with Fireteam Whiskey. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie, for having me and uh, congrats on your forthcoming book yourself. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What's, what's the title? It's a struggle. <laughs> mm-hmm. It should be called It's a Struggle, um, as you know. Uh, actually, it's called Born to be Brave. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Look forward to it. Thank you. And um, so your book is is a is a memoir. Is it is it strictly a memoir or or is there some because I when I was reading the description, it seemed like it 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 may have some, you know, kind of self-help kind of benefits, kind of a, I don't know, kind of a mishmash of both. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it is it is a memoir. It is nonfiction. Um, everything in there is uh, true to the best of, of course, our our memories. As right. you know, um, you know, our memories are faulty and we we only live our own lives and we can only speak our own truths. And so. Um, somebody once recently told me about a quote from a book called Warlock and at the beginning, the author's note or the prologue, there's a quote about, you know, writing or, or fiction, uh, historical fiction is about, you know, seeking the truth, not the facts. And there's a difference. Mm. Um, and so I think memoir is very much the same Yeah, that you are, you are in search of the truth, not necessarily the facts. I will say that my writing voice is, um, I think people who like literary fiction in terms of how it's written will enjoy this because it's more of that style. It's less of the formulaic kind of nonfiction writing style. Um, That's just happens to be my voice for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think if you've read Brian Kastner's book, The Long Walk, which is a great memoir, uh, Mm -hmm. read, you would enjoy something like this. Okay. There is a self-help component to it. I, I think that's a great question. I don't think it's, I, I wouldn't put it in the category of self-help, right. but I think it has that effect naturally. And, and that was sort of my entire goal in publishing this is, you know, people ask me, oh, you know, do you have any number that you want to sell? And <clears throat> I think any author that says that they don't want to be a bestseller is, is lying. Um, I think that mm-hmm. all want to sell books, right? Um, because we wouldn't write it if we didn't think we had something important to say. But uh, my goal in it is that I think there are a lot of people out there 
for one reason or another who are suffering in silence with some sort of, they're living with mental illness, they're dealing with their own sort of trauma, whether it's post-traumatic stress, whether it's moral injury, they're dealing with an aging parent who is showing signs of dementia or has Alzheimer's. Um, and so I wanted them to know that they're not alone because I think oftentimes people who are living with these conditions feel alone. They feel lost and alone and, and sort of without any support system. And I wanted them to know that that's not the case, even when it feels that way. So that's the way that I would qualify it as self-help. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that it's limited again to just, you know, Jason Kander, who did an endorsement of the book, talks about how the context of the book is war and Alzheimer's, but that it's much broader, right? It talks about trauma right. and grief. And, and I think that people who haven't necessarily experienced war or Alzheimer's still could take something away from this book. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we definitely want to cover upon the fact that you are um, a former army ranger. So cool. <laughs> so thank <laughs> you for your service. <laughs> so um, do you want to just touch upon uh, just briefly, you know, your, your military experience? Yeah. Uh, so I started, um, it was 12 days after graduating high school, I went into the Marine Corps, actually. And so uh, that was 23 years ago now. It feels like it was yesterday. But um, and I was in the Marine Corps Reserves. And uh, the intent was to go through college, go to OCS, do that whole you know process, and then go to law school and then become a JAG uh, or a judge advocate in the, the Marine Corps. Um, that ended up not working out. I kind of just made my own path and and was in law school eventually and then in a firm and decided that I missed the military. I missed what I really missed. There, there was an underlying sense of guilt, I think is, is how I would name it, that I had not deployed when I was in the Marines. And I felt this strong pull of duty that I hadn't, that all these other people had deployed in many cases, multiple times and that I had not sort of done my duty um, for the country. And so I ultimately left the firm and went into the army. Um, I joke with people that I wanted to try every branch before I retired. Um, and so and sometimes I would say that I would go from the hardest to the easiest and I would let other people decide what was the easiest. But uh oh, yeah, uh, I was about to say. <laughs> But uh -oh. no, um, yes. <laughs> the army, at first I was going to stay at the firm. I was going to do the reserve side of the army. And, you know, when you're trying to start a career um, in the military while, while holding on to the civilian side job, it can be very challenging. And the idea of trying to sell the firm on letting me go for a year for training, which is what the Navy requires for their judge advocates or the Marines, um, that that really wasn't palatable to the firm. And so ultimately I decided that the army was a better option because the pipeline was shorter. And then um, things didn't necessarily work out with the firm um, in the sense that it's really hard, I think as most, most individuals who are serving in the reserve component, reserve component, excuse me, would know is very hard to maintain that civilian job and excel in your military job. Like one of those two things 
is going to suffer as a result. Um, it's very challenging. And I ultimately decided that I was just going to go active duty. And so that's what I did. And so I ended up in active duty um, in the army. And from there I was, you know, I started at Fort Sill. I ended up um, ultimately made my way through Fort Belvoir to the, <clears throat> to the 82nd airborne. I applied for a position with the 75th Ranger Regiment, went through assessment and selection RASP, as it's known, uh, for the Rangers, was selected. Um, and that's, and you know, kind of where I, how my career trajectory went. Yeah, awesome. So obviously you wrote a book about uh, your, your experience with war and also, um, you know, in bringing in your father's um, own experiences with, um, and your father was in the Marines? No, so my dad served in the Navy. Oh, in the Navy, okay. And only for like, I'd have to look at his DD-214, but it was something like 30 days or, or so. So oh, wow. <laughs> in, the, in the 60s, his draft number came up. Uh -huh. um, and so rather than joining the army, or rather than going to the army, he decided he was going to join the Navy. So he went down and mm. signed up with the recruiter for the Navy. Um, many yeah. funny, humorous stories he has out of that process. And then <laughs> when he got to uh, Great Lakes Naval Station for boot camp, they discovered that he had broken his wrist in several places in high school pole vaulting um, and had uh -huh. pins and whatnot, metal hardware in there. And they determined that he wasn't medically fit. Ah, gotcha. They, they discharged him for, quote, erroneous enlistment. Um, <laughs> and so it was an honorable discharge, but uh, so that was his Navy experience. <laughs> well, you mentioned a term a couple of times, and I, I definitely want to um, have you define this because it's not, I, it's a little bit more prevalent now, but not in the general public. So maybe those who are listening or watching who may not be military veterans probably don't know this term moral injury. So can you describe yeah. that, what that means? Uh, so I'm going to, I'll probably, you know, bastardize the true definition of it, but it's a term that was coined by, um, if I'm not mistaken, Jonathan Shea, who is a um, psychiatrist or, or treating physician at the uh, veterans affairs departments of department of veterans affairs. And he coined this phrase. Now, it's not something that's new there. Um, he wrote two books um, that deal with this. One is called Achilles in Vietnam, and I'm, I'm blanking on the other. And so it's been around, um, you know, you can trace it back to the Greek epic poems um, that, that in some way talk about moral injury. But it's this idea that you have betrayed either somebody in a position of power or you or yourself has betrayed a um, strongly held personal more, right? A, a strongly mm -hmm. held personal belief. And as a result, you have created this soul wound. And, and I really should come up with, I give you a better definition for this um, so that I don't completely mislead people. Yeah. Syracuse University says it's the damage done to one's conscience or moral compass when the person perpetrates witnesses or fails to prevent acts that transgress one's own moral beliefs, values, or ethical codes of conduct. 
-hmm. So there is, um, there is a distinction between post-traumatic stress and moral injury. Uh, people, you know, there, there is an overlapping Venn diagram. People can have both, but they are different. They are starting to be recognized as different conditions. Now, post-traumatic stress is, of course, talked about in the DSM, um, whereas moral injury is not. And it is, you're correct, that it's not really well known. I would even suggest that in the military, it's not well known among a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, but it is becoming more and more well known outside the military because of healthcare professionals, largely as a result of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So you're starting to see that there are physicians, nurses, other healthcare workers who are showing signs of moral injury, largely because they're placed in a position where they have to make impossible choices about a patient's care or their own health in yes. relation to a patient's care. Mm -hmm. And you know, the inability to save all of these people because they're having a triage. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Another really uh, good example of that was during Hurricane Katrina and the, the hospitals there making those very, very difficult decisions on who gets saved and who gets left behind because they literally only had a limited capacity of evacuating the hospitals. Yeah. So, um, and I, I think you know, it. I wish it were more talked about. And I guess that's part of what your book, book's mission is, is to, you know, emphasize that this is a significant um, issue, not only just for military veterans, but you know, it's kind of prevalent in our world, especially the way the world is right now. So, um, your book is. Uh, kind of about your battle, basically, with moral injury and PTSD, and and also simultaneously alongside that, your father's battle with Alzheimer's and and the the kind of the interaction between the two and the comparison between those two battles you were both engaging in personally, but also walking together um, with with these conditions. So can you talk a little bit more about kind of the premise with your book and, and what you what you want, you know, the readers to kind of understand about your journey? So I think the question that I would start with is, you know, think about, we, we all have a person to whom we would turn in terms of uh, who we would turn to in times of crisis or when we need advice, right? The question to ask is what would happen if that person is no longer there, right? At that point, who do you turn to? And, and hopefully you have a social network or you have a network of family members and friends that, that you can turn to, right? But not everyone does, or not everyone has that one person that they feel comfortable being completely vulnerable with. And so for me, that was my dad, right? My dad was the person that I would turn to for advice uh, anytime that I faced a very difficult life decision or found myself in some sort of crisis. That's not to say that I don't have other people to support me or other people that I trust. It's just he's the person that I would go to. But when I got back in September of 2018, um, he's really not there. You know, he's he's alive, but he's not living. Um the effects of Alzheimer's had at that point really kind of taken their course and 
at that point, he really no longer recognized me, didn't talk, didn't really move, et cetera. And so what the book became about was how do I, how do I get that fatherly advice that I need when that father is no longer there? And, and it just so happens that I saved all of the letters that he had written to me at Marine Corps boot camp in 2000, right? And they're kind of filled with the normal sort of letters, the normal sort of fatherly advice that you would expect to have from a father, you know, like keep your chin up and all of that, those types of phrases. But what I found is that in the things that he wrote, even though they're cliched, there was a deeper meaning to them that I didn't really appreciate at age 18 or even, you know, at age 30 when I hadn't really experienced any sort of what I now look back on as true adversity. Um, and so at its heart, it's a story about memories and how memories can both break us and heal us, right? So in this case, talking about memories of the circumstances in Afghanistan um, and my participation in those versus the memories of my father and my life with him and what those can do for me moving forward. So that's sort of the, the elevator pitch, I would say, for the book. Um, the other thing that I think is, is interesting, that, an interesting perspective of this is when we think about post-traumatic stress or more injury, right, the, the body part that that attacks is the brain. And it's the thing that makes us who we are, right? Our identity is based in our brain and what that, you know, that's who we are. And so when you start to question your identity and your purpose in life, which is a lot of times what people who are living with post-traumatic stress or moral injury experience, um, that can be troubling. Alzheimer's is very similar, right? It attacks the brain and it attacks the identity of the individual because at some point um, the individual ceases to exist. When my dad no longer recognized me, couldn't talk, couldn't open his eyes, couldn't walk. He was just a shell. It was just his body. He was no longer there. Um, it's almost like he had died once and then a second time, um, you know, when he finally died. So um, that to me was an interesting sort of parallel between these two. Yeah. And what And what sort of fear does that create in an individual? Yeah, that's a that's a very intriguing kind of comparison of both of you were, you know, being attacked basically by your conditions, you know, in your brains, and it was doing similar things, and you were both navigating these things, and your your way of helping you navigate this was to turn back to those memories and that connection with your dad. Uh, through these letters and and because he wasn't able to provide that connection to you in his body at that moment but you could tap back into those memories and those words and use that to help you navigate this battle you were going through in your brain exactly exactly wow that's so really I, powerful i kind of view it as an imagined conversation yeah if, if he and i were sitting down today what would he be saying to me and those letters informed that, as did the memories, right? I learned a lot about myself 
through those memories um, and how they affected my personality moving forward. And did those things necessarily predispose me to react in a certain way to the events that occurred in Afghanistan, which I think is natural, right? Those, yeah. the, the experiences we have in childhood inform who we become. And then those things can predispose us one way or another to a particular you know, response to trauma. Yeah, 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 that's very powerful. Fireteam Whiskey is now found on Burnalong. We're so excited to be able to provide all of our fitness and wellness content right on this platform with thousands of other licensed and credentialed providers who are specialized in fitness, health, wellness, and even financial literacy. So if you've ever wanted to join the Fireteam Whiskey programs, now is your chance to not only get all of our amazing content, but also get access to hundreds of thousands of videos that will help you be well. Fireteam Whiskey is one of the exclusive providers on the Burnalong app. And all you have to do to go to join us is go to fireteamwhiskey.com, click on the link at the top of the page, and use that special coupon code we have for you to get burn along for as low as $9 a month. Was there, um, was there one uh, piece of advice in particular that you can recall um, from your dad in those letters that, that uh, you'd like to share just kind of as an antidote um, to provide kind of an example here of what we're talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. Um... I think the the one that that resonates with me um, the most and the one that I think will resonate sort of with the the intent of me writing this is you are not alone. And so um, I like like most people who who go away from their home and find themselves um, standing in attention in front of a barking drill instructor or a drill sergeant there is a, a certain amount of homesickness that we feel, right? I think that's a pretty natural human response. And I had terrible homesickness at boot camp. And I remember, you know, talking to him or writing to him about kind of the, the homesickness I was experiencing and how much I didn't want to be there and all of the things that you would complain about as a 18 year old taken away from the comforts of home. And he talked to me a lot in those letters about homesickness and it's natural. And, you know, I felt homesickness too. And he just reminded me, you're not alone. And that's kind of one of those phrases that seems like a throwaway phrase, right? Just something he wrote in a letter, but there's a deeper significance there, right? When you are dealing with the response of trauma and, and here, I'm not even speaking about myself here. I think I'm speaking more universally. When you're dealing with trauma and you feel alone and you feel like you're going crazy and you have nowhere to turn and you're withdrawing and self-isolating, that phrase becomes much more powerful. To have someone tell you, you are not alone, that can be life-saving in some ways. And I think that's important. And so for me, that's 
one of the the big moments sort of of the book is is that phrase yeah yeah and I, I think that's that's definitely why connections are so important when you get out of the military with you know people who have been through similar things have been you know worn the uniform and and maybe experienced some of the similar things that you have because I would say like there's no there's no type of bond like the bond between your fellow military veterans like there's no civilian equivalent to that <laughs> I just don't think there is and it I think it it does come down to that shared experience like knowing I don't even have to describe it like they absolutely know what my truth is and I don't need to go into the details I don't need to re-experience it I don't need to talk about it it's like they know I know and and they're here with me and they're alongside me and I'm not alone that's a perfect point and I think it's it's spot on because you have a social network based around that shared understanding right that shared experience and if you think about it what happens when you transition out of the military a lot of people have a very hard time with that transition because all of a sudden this sense of identity and this purpose that they've had for years is now just gone. And yeah. so having that shared network, that that network that you can turn to and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this is crucial in that transition period in navigating the challenges that come about with a this sense of lost identity. Yeah. And then adding on top of that, experiences like moral injury, where it's almost dangerous or threatening to, to speak about these maybe moral injury events and experiences with civilians, with people who have not been there and been in those kinds of situations, because there would be, there's a high chance of just absolutely no connection, <laughs> like, and even just, you know, threat of judgment or even persecution or, you know, um, even maybe ending of relationships because of, you know, maybe some, some choices that were things that you were involved with in your, you know, wartime experiences where nobody outside of that circle would be able to understand. Yeah, I think, obviously I'm not a clinician, but I think it ultimately comes down to guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. Those two emotions are so powerful and can cause us that, I mean, ultimately leads to that isolation, right? You, because of that fear of judgment, because that fear of, I did a bad thing, that's the guilt side of the equation, and I am a bad person, that's the shame side of the equation. Yeah. Those two things make you apprehensive to open up to anybody, even somebody as close as a spouse. Mm-hmm. There's a point in the book where I talk about um, what it's like to watch someone die with my wife. And there's a moment where she's quiet and I can feel this sense of like, is she judging me mm-hmm. for, for this, for me telling her this, for me, being involved in this, can she fully appreciate kind of the circumstances and the pressures that that all deployed you know service members feel? Um, 
that all of those things are kind of going through your head as you're relating these things to people. And you're right that that shared experience is so important to getting people to open up. It's why we often turn to other service members first, because there is a, not just getting away from the lingo, there is this understanding of what the environment is like and the pressures that you face. And that can be validating. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and even if you you, you don't have a, a connection like that or, or social, you know, the ability to do that, then you can maybe read your book and make that connection with you and and so many other you know veterans who have written about similar topics like this but you know even just connecting through reading about these shared experiences like in your book might be helpful to for to the reader to feel like okay yeah somebody gets me even though i haven't met eric in person but reading his story and connecting with that it's like yeah this dude gets it and, and maybe it'll get them the cur- courage to kind of process that and move forward. There's a power behind being seen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. if we as individuals feel seen, that's half the battle in my view. And I think that this book is hopefully the reader, particularly those who need it most, when they read it, they say, I feel seen. Because I think that helps sort of alleviate some of that burden. It doesn't take it away. It's not going to, this is not a, you know, sort of um, a a prescription drug that's going to take away all the pain or, or, you know, solve the issues. I don't think Mm -hmm. that anything can ever do that. But um, to the extent that they can feel like somebody understands them, then that means that I've succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. So is there any other, um, any other antidote or, or topic about the book that you feel like it's important for people to, to understand? I think, I I think we've, we've kind of sort of talked through the, um, the structure of the book and and what people are going to hopefully walk away with from yeah. it. I think I think the only other thing I would talk about is that I know that there were years ago, um, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but there were years ago, you know, many years ago, when the first reports started to come out about drone pilots suffering with post traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. I remember scoffing at that Mm. and I look back now and feel ashamed for that response because I you know then the the immature Eric said back then how can these individuals they're they're not even in a deployed you know zone they're they're in Nevada or somewhere else Right. right they go home to their family every night they have dinner um, how can they really be kind of suffering trauma? Like it's they're they're playing a video game. I realize now that that was just um, asinine in me to think, mm. and that 
the reality is, is that we don't know how any one person is going to respond to an event, a traumatic event, whatever it may be. Yeah. And first off, we should not be judgmental. And if we are, shame on us. But second, none of us know how another person's brain is reacting and what that person is living with. And maybe, just maybe, we should start to express some more empathy for other people. I think we would go a long way toward ridding ourselves of this stigma if we would express some empathy towards people and mm -hmm. understand that there are a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of ways that people can develop post-traumatic stress. And just because we didn't, you know, you know, because we were outside the wire or we were taking fire, but somebody who is inside the wire or somebody who is in a box in Nevada did, there, there's no comparison because we're each individuals, right? Yeah. And how one person's going to respond is is not the same as another. And I think that's really important and something that we need to focus on. I think that as far as I'm aware, I'm the first judge advocate to, to write about this. Um, hmm. That's not necessarily a good thing because hmm. I don't think I'm the only one to be dealing with this. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's related just to combat. Um, mm -hmm. I think judge advocates... Judge advocates perform a very unique role in the military and they have a lot of different um, assignments. And, and for example, um, there are the trial counsel or special victims prosecutors, right? Those are individuals yeah. who, who deal with the military justice system or criminal law system. And on the opposite side of them, you have the defense counsel and the senior defense counsels. And think about some of the cases that they are dealing with uh, on a daily basis sexual mm -hmm. assault and rapes, child pornography, child abuse. And if you are looking at, for example, hundreds of images of child pornography in preparation for a court martial, or you are dealing with sexual assault victim after sexual assault victim after sexual assault victim, like a uh, special victims advocate might do, you can't tell me that there's not going to be some sort of secondary trauma there. And that's why the DSM recognizes that people, and I think when they wrote this, they were thinking about police officers who are investigating these things and are looking at photos of child abuse or child pornography or rape victims. Those people are affected by it. The DSM recognizes it. It's because that secondary trauma is real. Yeah. And so I think it's much broader than just combat. I think this is something that's a bit more pervasive than we would like to uh, admit throughout the yeah. judge general's core. Um, and again, not just, you know, not just limited to judge advocates, it's every sort of position, every sort of duty assignment in the army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Space Force, Coast Guard, all of them, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're all going to be exposed to something that could be a traumatic event that may lead to post-traumatic stress. Or yeah. Mortal. Yeah. Now that's a really good point. And, you know, those, I mean, you know, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. So, you know, it's like, of course us and like basically any medical 
you know, profession, you know, um, and uh, firefighters, CMTs, paramedics, law enforcement, corrections officers. I worked in the prison system for five years. Like, I, I pretty much have seen it all. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, definitely secondary trauma. So we forget about these people and we kind of talk about the umbrella of trauma um, is that, you know, we have people who are not only experiencing that, that secondary trauma or even moral injury involved, but then they're going home, like you said, having dinner with their families. And then they wake up the next day and go right back into it. And then here we go. Another exposure, right? So this, this chronic exposure, even if it is not, you know, first degree trauma, but secondary trauma or moral injury types of situations, gosh, like what is the effect of that? You know, you would know better than I, but without time to process. Oh yeah. None. You're going from one, you're going from a traumatic event into a non-traumatic, right? So in the case of drone pilots, you're, you're, you're in the box, you're doing operations, you're hitting targets, then you go home to a wife, husband, children, have dinner, and then you're going back the next day. And and there's no time to process what you've just done. Right. You know, you're, you're yeah. going from killing people to living with people and, and trying to enjoy life, right? It's just we're not meant to deal with that as humans. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so not having time to process that, not having time to process grief, you see the same thing in, in combat with individuals who are on teams that lose a team member without mm -hmm. time to process that grief. They're immediately back out on a mission, right? It's no wonder that sort of they come back with some sort of lingering problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all really really complex um, situations and, 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 you know, thank you for having the, the vulnerability and the bravery of sharing your own story, you know, with the world <laughs> by writing this book. And um, so, so I guess the last question here is uh, who needs to read your book? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think you could go in the narrow sense, um, judge advocates and, and people with who with some sort of, you know, some family member who's suffering from Alzheimer's. But I think that's too narrow. I don't think that I think this book speaks to people in a much broader audience. And I think yeah. the way I would say is that if you are, if you have dealt with any sort of trauma, um, if you feel that you are without that person in your life who uh, you can turn to to be vulnerable and to seek out that guidance or even just that hug that you need, right? That we we cherish from kind of our the the people that we love most. Then I think that book the book is for them. Um, if you felt like you're not, if you feel like you are not seen. Um, and you are living with some sort of mental illness related to trauma or the death of an aging parent, then I think this book is for you. I don't think yeah. you need to know anything about war. 
I don't think you need to know anything about Alzheimer's necessarily to still walk away with something from this book that will hopefully, you know, my goal, help you. Yeah, yeah. And especially those those people in those populations that we just talked about, you know, the EMTs, firefighters, uh, medics, you know, people who were corrections, licensed medical, medical professionals, you know, all, even lawyers, <laughs> even you too, lawyers. <laughs> yeah. no. Even you people we don't like. <laughs> Especially you lawyers, we'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> Law enforcement. So yes, and um, and memoir lovers, you know, I, although I am a, you know, I fall under a couple of those categories who need to read your book, but I also love memoirs. So I, I can't wait to read your book. And the book is called All the Memories That Remain. And um, it's by Eric Liddick. And uh, it's available. You want to tell us where to find your book? Everywhere books are sold. Everywhere books are sold, but you can go to emlidick.com. And uh, check out um, his website and, and find the link to to purchase the book there. Yep. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can order it through them, or if you prefer Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any of the big retailers as well. Right. Well, really, thank you, Eric. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, and appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey guys, thanks so much again for joining us on another episode of the Warrior Wellness Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe, follow, like, all that good stuff on your favorite podcast platform or and on our YouTube channel. Go ahead and leave us a review while you're there. And if you screenshot your review, email it to info at fireteamwhiskey.com with your name and address you'll be entered into our drawing for a prize for just leaving us a review so let us know what we're doing great what you'd like to hear more about and please go ahead and just give us a follow and give us a honest review especially on itunes because that helps us reach other military members, veterans, and first responders with this vitally important information about how to improve their health, fitness, and wellness. We will see you at the next episode of the Warrior Wellness Podcast. I am your podcast host, former Army Captain Stephanie Lincoln, founder of Fire Team Whiskey.